pray with me? Lord, your love is amazing and, and we do honor you. Um, God, you, you are our king. Um, you are also our friend. And, um, and Lord, we, we just uh, again acknowledge um, your rightful place as the king of our lives. Lord, this morning, um, this was a deep sense of, of just need of you. Um, that we come. And, and so, Lord, I pray that as, as we open your word, that you would open our hearts. Um, Lord, where there is a thirst for you, would you satisfy us with the water of life? And, and um, you meet each of us in our own area of need. Lord, speak to our hearts um, as only you can. Open our hearts as we open your word. Teach us. We love you. Pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Again, welcome you here this morning. Um, if you're new here, my name is Floyd, and I do the majority of the teaching and preaching here at Cornerstone. I'm grateful that you're here. Um, I know there's some joining us online. They're doing some traveling and um, or maybe needing to be at home. I just welcome you here. Um, just very quickly, uh, just acknowledge the fact that things are looking a little more tore up than they were last week. So. Um, if you're new here, if you're a regular, you're, you, this is what we're going to continue seeing for the next several weeks is uh, sort of this gradual um, sort of, you know, moving things and some other colors showing up. And um, if you notice the stone pillars got taken down this week, they are now about, um, let's see, they'd be 32 feet behind me. Um, so, uh, so they got moved back there, and so they're in the process of sort of building that, and here in a few weeks, um, we're hoping somewhere around late March, early April, to be able to be fully in there, um, the extra chairs and extra rooms, and, and, um, and have that wall completely removed. So you may have noticed there's a table in the back for kids check up, check in instead of the normal check-in station. Well, that check-in station is getting rebuilt and repurposed in order to be used in the kids' wing over there. So apologies for all of the uh, sort of general sense of chaos, and we're trying to keep it at a minimum, um, but please bear with us, and, and hopefully in a few weeks why we'll kind of have all of this resolved. So I, um, I'm hearing an echo in my voice, and yeah, it makes me sound smart. Um, <laughs> makes me sound big and important, I guess. So anyway, we have been working our way through the God, or not through the gospel, through the book of 2 Samuel. We are in 2 Samuel chapter 7 this morning. Um, 2 Samuel chapter 7 is, is a fascinating part of the story, and you could argue that it's the most important part of the story of First and 2 Samuel. Here's why. 2 Samuel chapter 7 is where God establishes his covenant with King David. Um, it seems as though where we started in 1 Samuel with Hannah, you know, longing for a child, God miraculously giving her a son, and she named him Samuel. She gave him to the work of the Lord all the days of his life, and he did serve the Lord. He eventually is the one who anoints King Saul, and then um, after God has rejected Saul, he anoints King David as a prince over his people. And, and David, is, if you've been following along, is sort of that picture or type, if you will, of Jesus coming as the ultimate fulfillment of King David's uh, throne. 
and the promises made to David. The promises made to David really sort of culminate here in 1 Samuel chapter 7. I came to this passage with, you know, a pretty high degree of awareness of the fact that it's there in the Bible. Um, I found it interesting that a lot of commentators would consider this to be one of the most important passages in the entire book of the Bible. And when I first came across that comment, I thought, that's hyperbole. Um, that's way over exaggeration of how important the Davidic covenant is, the covenant made to David. And, and that was my first reaction to that statement. And I read, you know, a, a few other people, and they said this could be one of the most important passages in all of the Bible. And I think, man alive, if it's the most important passage or one of the most important passages in the Bible, um, why are we not talking about that? And then as I kept digging, I realized that there are many, many places throughout the rest of Scripture following 2 Samuel chapter 7 where this relationship with David is referred to as a reason to trust God or as a reason to trust Jesus in the New Testament. And that, like this passage, ends up being sort of a hinge point, if you will, in the gradual unfolding of the story of Jesus, the coming Messiah, the King of Kings. So, we're going to get into it. I titled the message this morning, I Have and I Will. Here's why. As we read through, especially the covenant that God is making with David, you see him beginning with the I Haves. God is talking to David through the prophet Nathan, and he goes into the past, and he talks about how I have done this, I have done this, I have done this. And then at some point, about halfway through, he begins to transition, and he begins to talk about what he will do. And I think that's worth us paying attention to because that's also our story. In the moments where we question the goodness of God, there is a value and an importance on turning around and looking back over not just the story of our lives, but the story of human history. And who has he been? What has he done? What has he said? And the, the goodness and the faithfulness of God in the past is a place to anchor ourselves and even our emotions and our soul as to who God will be in the future and who he will continue to be. I've often said, especially more recently, that if all you get, <coughs> excuse me, if all you get out of a Sunday morning is a reminder of who your God is, that's probably enough. Because all of us know what the rest of a week can look like. On any given week, there are surprises that come, there are disappointments, there are questions, there are anxieties. There's all kinds of things coming at us all the time. And our human tendency is to first turn to our own resources in the moments of question. Do I have enough money? Do I have enough energy? Do I have enough time? Do I have enough strength? 
Do I have enough intelligence? And that's, that tends to be our first question, given a challenge which we meet on a daily basis. Do I have enough? And it's unfortunate that too many times you might show up at church and somebody opens the Bible, but they, all they do is affirm that question. Do you have enough? And you leave discouraged because you realize, like I often do, I really don't have enough. And so, if all you get on any given Sunday morning, maybe it's a song that gets sung, something that gets said across a pulpit, read out of a text, is, oh, I needed to be reminded of who my God is. That's enough. And you carry that into the week with you. And you go with that. I'm, uh, I'm just going to trust you guys in the back to do whatever you're doing with my voice here. <laughs> At some point, you know, you can just shut it off and I'll just yell. Um, now, bear with us. So let's pick it up in verse 1 of 2 Samuel chapter 7. And I want to read some of these verses. Verses 1 to 8. 2 Samuel 7, if you've got your Bibles, you're welcome to follow along. It says, Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. Verse 9, And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly." From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son." When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever, shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. And I want to just pause there. And I hope that as we were reading through that text that you were able to sort of pick up on the I haves and the I wills. 
Because you understand the scenario, David has just returned the Ark of the Covenant to, uh, to Jerusalem. We looked at that several weeks ago. And now David is living in a wonderful palace, in a house, and he suddenly realizes, you know, the Ark of the Covenant is in a tent, and I'm living in a wonderful house. Now, no criticism of David, but I did notice that he didn't say, how about I move to the tent and you move to the house, God? Um, he just says, let's build a house for the Lord. And, and that seems like the logical thing to do, right? He looks around and he says, something is not really right here because God is certainly more important to Israel and to all of humanity than David is, and he gets that right. It doesn't seem right that the God of heaven and earth, that the creator God, would dwell in a tent while humans dwell in houses, he used the term, made of cedar. Um, and David is not completely wrong about that. And so Nathan, who is sort of introduced in this text, and we're going to find Nathan showing up a few times later as we work our way through 2 Samuel, Nathan does what any good prophet would do when somebody says, I'd like to do something wonderful for God. And Nathan says, that sounds like a good idea. You do whatever is in your heart. And he sees a good motive in David. But then God comes to Nathan in the night and says, you need to go tell my servant David, no. In fact, he uses this interesting term. He says, would you build a house for me? And that's recorded both in 2 Samuel and then also in 1 Chronicles where it also tells the story again. That God is sort of asking this rhetorical question like, are you going to be able to build a house for me? And there's a moment that should sort of make David and the rest of us sort of step back and say, how would you contain God in a house? Well, you wouldn't contain God in a house. And even when you move down the story to where Solomon eventually builds a temple for God, that temple does not contain the presence of God. Because he's omnipresent. What it does is it contains a representation of God's presence. And that representation of God's presence, the Shekinah glory that was in the Holy of Holies, that, that we, we call that the Shekinah glory, the beautiful, powerful glory and presence of God, was also a picture of a New Testament reality that was coming where the Spirit of God would dwell in the hearts of his people who, it says in 1 Corinthians, are now the temples of the living God. So, David says, I want to build a temple for God. Seems like his heart's in the right place. Seems like a great idea. God says, would you build a house for me? And then God begins to establish something with David where he says, I'll build you a house. And I'm not sure that God is necessarily saying... I'll build you a house or I'll build you into a house because he seems to be saying both. In other words, he's saying, I will establish for you, David, a dynasty that is going to go beyond the grave. And he, re and he returns and he starts looking at, how, at who he has been to David in the past. And not just David, but David's people. And he reminds him of what he has done in the past. You know, one of the great values of 
journaling, which, by the way, is not just a women's activity. Guys, you guys ought to have journals too. One of the great values of journaling is that it gives us reminders of places to go back, moments in the past where God has been faithful, where he's answered prayers, where he's shown himself to be strong in our lives. And God is pointing back for David and he's saying, do you realize who I've been in the past? And then he, then he turns and he says, and here's what I will do. I'm going to raise up an offspring. He's going to build the temple. Referring, of course, to Solomon. He doesn't name Solomon, but he describes him. And then he takes it further and he says, and then I'm going to establish, and he, he makes it clear to David, you're going to die one day, right? Um, but he says, and I'm going to take your throne and it will be established forever. And we're going to get into that in a moment. I want to quickly, before we move any further, I want to look at David's response. In verse 18, David, it says, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? That's an amazing question, isn't it? David says, Who am I, God, that you are this kind to me? That you've been so faithful to me. That's another way of saying, God, I don't deserve your goodness. I don't deserve your grace. I didn't earn it. David's aware of that. And we should be too. I'm going to skip just a few verses for the sake of time. Jump down to verse 25 and pick it up there. Because this is David's response to God after God has established his covenant with, with him. And he says, And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house. And do as you have spoken, and your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel. And the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. See what David is saying? He said, based on your promise, God, he says, I find the courage to turn around and pray these kinds of prayers to you. And he says, now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken. With your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. Look at how many times he refers to him as the Lord God. He's acknowledging that he is the Redeemer and that he is, in fact, God. And David, in that moment, is... Not, does not seem to be upset over the fact that he got a no from God. He is incredibly grateful, and he's just full of praise. And he's like, God, I didn't deserve this. I don't deserve your kindness. I don't deserve your goodness. But he's like, Lord, just make it happen. Whatever you promise, go ahead and make it happen. Very quickly, I want to just kind of look at the response to David's plans, and here's why. Um, because people tend to speculate a lot on why God said no to David. I don't know for sure, but I think a good place to start would be why he says he said no to David. Um, and that there are several things that he said that he gave reasons. One of them simply just that God had not commanded that, they would be, that David would build him a house. He says it in this text. He says it also in First Chronicles. He says, did I command the judges? Did I command other people? to build me a house of cedar? That's, a, that's his question. And the obvious answer is, no, you didn't. And God's saying, well, if I didn't ask for it, then don't do it. 
fair enough. So God hadn't commanded it. Solomon was the one that was supposed to build it. In both of those places, God makes it clear that it's David's offspring that's supposed to build the temple. That's another reason that God gives for his response to David, is that Solomon's the one that's supposed to do it. It's kind of interesting in 1 Kings chapter 5, um, when Solomon is getting ready to, he says, because my father always had enemies, that's why God didn't let him build the temple. Because there was always enemies in David's life. And, um, and Solomon says it's one of the reasons that God didn't let him build the temple. And then lastly, um, in 1 Chronicles chapter 22, um, David gives that reason of God having said no to him because David had shed much blood and waged, I think it actually says waged great wars there. So, I have heard speculations along the lines of, well, um, Solomon might have been a little more of a picture or a type of the, uh, the, the post-Pentecost church, you know, the, the presence of God dwelling in the temple, um, and, um, and maybe even more the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, I, I don't know. Scripture doesn't say that. It is kind of fascinating, though, in Stephen's sermon in the book of Acts, Stephen goes through the history of the Old Testament, and this is really kind of interesting to me. And he goes through, you know, Abraham and Moses, and he talks about the different patriarchs, and he goes into David, and he talks about David. And Stephen's preaching a pretty long sermon, which I would too if I was about to be executed at the end of it. I mean, if you think I preach long now, threaten to kill me at the end of the sermon, I'll preach a long sermon, longer than Stephen did. But, um, but Stephen sort of wraps up that sermon, and Solomon, it looks like, is like the last... Um, person that he names in his sermon and he talks about Solomon building the temple and then he cut, it's almost like he stops and he looks at these guys and he said and you've always resisted the Holy Spirit and they were upset and they stoned him um, so I don't know some of that is in the realm of speculation so I'm, I try to be pretty careful not to over speculate on stuff um, but there may, be some, there may be some other things that are a little more um, insinuated and not spoken directly. These are the ones that are spoken directly. This is, this is directly reasons that God would have given for saying no to David. And David's response, of course, was to worship. Um, God's response prompted David to sit down and just, just be like, Lord, you're amazing. This is awesome. Why would David respond to a no with such an incredible thank you? Why would David's response to God saying, no, you're not the man that I have chosen to build this temple, why would David's response be to say, Lord, you are awesome, and I, I just trust you to do everything you said you would do? And I think the answer is found in the covenant that God made with his servant David. And David realized that God was going to do something far greater with his story and with who he was than just a temple built by hands. And I want to spend the remaining of our time looking at the Davidic covenant. John Piper says that God's covenants are his self-written job descriptions. And I kind of like that. You know, there's different covenants that God makes with his children. He made a covenant with Abraham. In you I will bless all the nations of the earth. 
You know, I've often said, and I, I don't think this is original with me, that if you think that God's eye was on the nations after, after Pentecost, you're not going back far enough. God's intent was to evangelize and to win the nations even back when he was talking to his servant Abraham, and I think you could argue even before that. But he makes that covenant with Abraham, in you will all the nations of the earth be blessed. Pointing it, of course, to Christ as the Redeemer, as the Messiah who would come as the seed or the, or the descendant of Abraham and who would literally change the entire world. He made a covenant with Noah. Interestingly enough, the, the covenant with Noah is one of the non-conditional covenants. It actually extends to all of creation. Go read it. I won't destroy the earth again with a flood. And he extends it to all of creation. Made a covenant with Moses in Mount Sinai. And here he makes a covenant with David. The, the, word, the word covenant, 282 times in the Old Testament. I suspect it matters. 34 times in the New Testament. Half of the New Testament references to a covenant are in the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is, that's one of the themes of the book of Hebrews, is sort of, again, looking back and saying, how has God covenanted with his people? And we can see what kind of a God he is. And then introducing that we have been invited into a covenant relationship with our God. And we can learn about who he was, how he covenanted with his people, and the types and shadows, this, this sort of, um, sometimes sort of grainy pictures, but helpful in understanding how our relationship is with God today and how we are, enter into a covenant relationship with him. And I, time is literally not going to allow me to unpack um, the different covenants. So we're going to have to sort of stay with the Davidic covenant, the one that he gave to David. But if you want to do an interesting study, read and study the covenants of God and how they apply and extend even to us. The covenant that God made with David, first and foremost, um, he established by his own hand. God is the one who establishes this covenant. This was not Nathan's idea. It wasn't even David's idea. David doesn't start with a prayer, Lord, would you enter into a covenant relationship with me, like you did with Abraham, like you did with Moses. It wasn't actually David's request. God initiated it, and God established it. And in the I haves of God's covenant with David, in other words, in the reflection, God carefully takes the attention and places it on the work of his hand in David's life. And he doesn't establish this covenant and say, David, you have earned it. Now, was David a righteous king? Yes. Had David placed himself in a position through his decisions and, and choices to be faithful? Yes, he had. And you and I are invited to trust God, place our faith in him, to trust Jesus as our Savior, 
But the relationship is ultimately established and initiated by God. He's the one who has done the work. I've often said this. There's a moment on Calvary. Jesus hangs on the cross. He's dying for your sins and for mine to restore fallen mankind back to a holy God. And Jesus does not say it is helped. He doesn't say it's added to. He doesn't even say it's started. He said it's finished. And you could argue that in that moment, Jesus was starting something, couldn't you? Couldn't you argue that, well, but Jesus, in offering yourself as the perfect sacrifice for sin, that for the rest of, of time, that anyone, whosoever, John 3.16, that whosoever will, this is invited to any, this is an invitation that's open to anybody, that whosoever will, if they will come, and if they will trust Jesus, and if they will confess their sins, that He will faithfully forgive them and cleanse them. 1 John 1.9 if, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a promise of God. And you could argue that Jesus was, was starting something in that moment, but that's not what He said. He said, it is finished. He said the work is actually finished to accomplish and to purchase our salvation. Why? Because you and I are not good enough to add anything to it. We're not good enough to earn it. The covenant relationship with God was, for David was established by God and our covenant relationship with God is also established by God. It is based on the finished work of Jesus at the cross, not based on you and I's perfect church attendance or our good works or whatever you want to fill in the blank. Secondly, it is evidence of God's faithfulness. This is a fascinating thing to me because as I started looking at this question of is 2 Samuel 7 really one of the most important passages in Scripture, I, I found myself going to a number of places throughout the books of the prophets where the prophets would encourage the nation of Israel in a time of captivity with a moment of reflection on the Davidic covenant. And that God had promised David that he would establish his throne forever. And you have to imagine these people, Israel, in Babylon, sitting there wondering, is God done with us? Is it over? Has God abandoned us? Is God so mad at us that he has abandoned us? And the prophets would repeatedly point back to David and his covenant with David and say, pick up your head. There's a king coming. God has promised he will establish a king forever. And this covenant that he makes with David is pointed to not only in the prophets, but even in places throughout Acts and other places in the New Testament as evidence of God's faithfulness to his children. Psalm 29 is a lament psalm. In several places throughout the psalm, in the midst of a lament, the psalmist goes back to this covenant with David as a reminder of God's faithfulness. And it's interesting, like I understand why the New Testament writers or why the apostles through the book of Acts, why they would return to it, because they understood Jesus is the fulfillment. I'm going to get to that in a moment. But those prophets 
Isaiah and Jeremiah and Amos, those guys, the psalmist, they hadn't seen it yet. They hadn't seen the fulfillment of this. But they knew that when God makes a promise, he always keeps his promise. They knew him to be that kind of a God. That when God says, I will, he will. The timing is in his hands. The way it unfolds is in his hands. But whatever he says he will do, he will do. And there's nothing more sure than a promise of God. And these people throughout history, they based their lives on that truth and that reality that God always keeps his promises. They anchored themselves in that. And so should we. You and I both encounter a lot of times and a lot of storms. And there are those moments where we're wondering, God, have you abandoned me? Why didn't you answer my prayers? When we prayed for healing, why didn't you answer? When I needed you to put some money magically in my account, why didn't you answer? Like, I, I'm not asking to win the lottery, but it'd be nice if a family member would. <laughs> a very generous one, by the way. You understand what I'm saying? There are times in our, in our life when the storms come, and we, in our humanity, we question the faithfulness of God. And like the writers and the people of Scripture who were just ordinary people like you and I, we go back to our covenant-making God and we anchor ourselves in His promises that He has promised. That he has promised. He's promised a lot of things, by the way. And He will keep every one of His promises. He has promised to David a seed who will come and who will establish a throne forever. And the, the Davidic covenant is eternally fulfilled in Christ. If you get to the book of Acts, this kind of fascinates me. Um, in the book of Acts, verse chapter 13, it says, At, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. What's he saying? He's saying David died. Not a huge surprise. But they needed to be reminded. You know, these, he's talking to people who saw themselves as the descendants of David. They were accurate. They were right about that. They didn't just see themselves that way. They actually were the descendants of David. And he says, David didn't actually get to see the fulfillment in his lifetime of the promise. And he says, but he whom God raised up did not see corruption. And the the, the places that I could turn to, especially in the book of Hebrews, there's more than just this spot right here. But the message is very clear that David was given the promise. The covenant was established with David, but it was not fulfilled in David. We look at the story of David and we see a type or a picture, but we don't see the Messiah. If you were here through some of our studies, especially in, in toward the later end of 1 Samuel, we're going to see it here and again in a few weeks. David was actually a very human person who made some major mistakes. 
committed some egregious sins. And sometimes I read the story of David and I think, I think I would have chosen somebody a little less flawed to establish a kingly line through. But at no point were the first readers or us supposed to see David as the ultimate fulfillment of the promise to redeem people. That is, redeem, that is fulfilled in Christ. He's the perfect fulfillment. And so like Aaron Messner says, um, the, the stories of, the story as you read through the Old Testament of the law given by Moses, you know, Abraham, the patriarchs, Moses, the law, and then we go into the period of the judges, and we go into, into the period of the kings, and then the prophets. He says the law, the judges, the kings, the prophets could not arrest a downward spiral of sin. And you see these spirals of repeated sin. And then you get to Jesus. And we just sang it. Death was arrested and our life began. Jesus alone could arrest the downward spiral of sin and for once and for all defeat sin. Christ is the fulfillment of this covenant to David. There's a passage in Isaiah 55, and we looked at it this morning. We were, a few of us were praying together, and, hit, and there is this great invitation. It says, come, anyone who's thirsty. Come, anyone who doesn't have money. And then there's this invitation to come. And then he says, he says, I'll establish this on the covenant that I made with David. There's another passage, and I want to quickly go to that in Revelations chapter 22. Great scene. Last chapter of the Bible, by the way. As I, Jesus, sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I'm the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. This is Jesus talking. What's he saying? He's saying I'm the, he's the fulfillment of this promise that we just read in 2 Samuel 7. And it says, And then the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty, Come. And let the one who desires the water of life without price. Isn't that an amazing invitation? The invitation is for anybody who is thirsty for God. Anyone who is thirsty for life for eternal life. And he says, based on this covenant in 1 Samuel chapter 7 that God established with his servant David, Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment of this, the descendant of David, the root and the descendant of David. Interesting terminology, by the way, because he's saying, before David, he was, right? He is. He's the root. He's also the descendant. And just a few verses ahead of this, he says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's eternally existent. And he says, the bright and morning star, and he says, in light of who Jesus is, in light of the fact that he has invited you and I into a covenant relationship with him, where he will offer to us eternal life, not only here, but in the future and through all of eternity. 
that He will put His life within us, that He will satisfy the thirsts of our heart. The longing to be fully known and fully loved, He can satisfy. The longing for inner peace, He can satisfy. The longing to know that I am forgiven, He can satisfy. The longing to be accepted when it doesn't seem like anyone else does, He can satisfy. The longing to be understood when it seems like everybody else misunderstands, He can satisfy. Longing for healing, He can satisfy. Why don't we come? Why don't we come? What are you thirsty for this morning? What are you hungry for? And where are you going to go with that? Where do you take the longings and the thirsts of your life? And we take them all over the place, don't we? Hobbies, relationships, careers, more, more and more. And he doesn't say go, he says come. And there is Jesus standing at the both ends of human history, eternally existent, high and holy, having purchased for us our salvation. And he invites us to come. And you could say, well, I, I did one time. I mean, I was, you know, I was seven years old and I realized I was a sinner and prayed with my parents and I received Christ in my heart. I came that day to Jesus. And I think he forgave me. Well, that's fantastic. But this is through the churches that he's giving this. He says it, right? He's talking to the churches. He's talking to people who have already trusted him. And he's saying, would you come? Would you come to me? Because you and I by now should have figured out that in our humanity, we tend to go other places. When we have guilt in our lives, when we're, when we're ashamed over something that we know should be different, we tend to hide from God instead of running to Him. And He doesn't say, get away. He says, come. Experience a covenant-making God who loves us, who has offered us a relationship with Him. Bring your hungers and come. Sermon and sentence, God has invited us into a covenant relationship and He will keep His promise of eternal life. I promise, He has and He will. He has and He will. He has purchased our salvation and He will grant us eternal life. He has and He will. You study questions if you want to take it deeper. There's some questions even around Isaiah 55. I'd highly recommend just going to that passage and absorbing that this week. It's wonderful. It's, it's just a great, it's a great passage. Amber, if you guys want to go ahead and come on up, I want to bring this to a close. But I, I want to leave you with that call or that invitation to come. Whatever the situations of your life are, where are you hungry and thirsty this morning? Where are you saying, God, this is what I long for? 
You know, this, this week I've, I've just been like so drawn into the story of, of what's happening there at Asbury College in, um, in Kentucky. And a story, and if you're not familiar with it, uh, Wednesday a week ago they had a chapel service and, and, and just with the, the move of God's Spirit and the presence of God in that place, they, nobody wanted to leave. And so they just kept praying and worshiping and other kids started coming in and they were just met with an unmistakable just the presence of God there. And so they just kept on going and they kept on going that night and through the night and, and um, that chapel service still has not ended as we, as we were here this morning. Um, you know, it's been, what, a week and a half. It's the work of God's Spirit. Um, nothing flashy, no, no lights or fog machines, um, no great powerful preaching, just God meeting His people. In a, in a season of revival. And, um, and I, you know, I keep looking at some of these clips on social media this week and stuff, and, and, um, and part of me wants to get in a car and go down there, you know, and experience it. I bet some of you do too. And people are. I mean, there's people literally flying from around the world um, just to go and to be there. And I understand that. I don't criticize that at all. Um, but I think deeper than that has been this, this sense of, Lord, would you do it here? Um, would you bring that to Kelowna? Would you bring it to me personally? <laughs> and, um, and, and just again, that longing and that thirst for more of God, for more of his grace, more of his mercy, um, more of his love, his healing, everything that he is, um, just a longing for more of him. And, and I come to that passage I just read in Revelations where it says, where Jesus just stands up and he says, come. If you're thirsty, come you don't have any money to pay for it, that's okay, come. I mean, what are we going to offer a God who owns everything anyway? And he just says, come. And, and this morning, as, as we just kind of bring this to a close, what are the, where, where are you thirsty? What are you hungry for? Um, he is a covenant-making God, and he's established his covenant not just with David, but he extends it to us as well. And he invites us to come. Would you pray? Lord, thank you. Thank you for your kindness, your graciousness. Um, God, I thank you that you, you do invite us to, to come to you. And, um, and God, I thank you for every person here who has responded to that invitation in some way or another and, and, uh, and said, yes, Lord, we, we want you to be Lord of our lives. We ask for your forgiveness. That's wonderful. God, I, I just think so many of us... Um, See it as an event instead of a of a identity um, or a daily practice. Lord, change that in our hearts. I'd give us the kind of faith that that lives um, in sort of that posture of responding to your invitation to come to you. That daily we would come to you, prayer and in your word. Times in our great moments of need instead of turning to other things, that we would come to you. God, forgive us um, where we've, we've sort of gotten enamored with the other things around us. We put our eyes on problems or on human solutions instead of just trusting you. Lord, right now, in this moment, there are people here, Lord, who just uh, who are just thirsty for a touch from you. Would you meet them as only you can? There are some here who were just dry. It's been a long time. They felt 
your spirit moving in their hearts and Lord would you again stir um, let them know that you care about them some here who are, who are asking for healing for themselves or for a loved one and, and uh, Lord we trust you as a great healer whatever our own area of need is we do come with our need trust you with it love you Lord thank you